Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Rob Eigner here. I'm thrilled to have the guest that we have today. Brad Klontz is the author of Mind Over Money, and he runs a company called Your Mental Wealth. It's available at yourmentalwealthadvisors.com, and that'll be in the show notes. I read Brad's book, Mind Over Money, several years ago and was very intrigued by it because it is a rare attack on people's money issues, not from how to invest necessarily or what to invest, but really what their relationship is with money. And I think particularly now in our world uh, where there's so much chaos and confusion and complexity around money this sort of tool and message is more important than ever. So Brad, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So tell me, how did you get into this? How how did this become your path? Yeah. So I didn't set out to arrive at this destination by any stretch of the imagination. I went to school to become a clinical psychologist. So that was my schooling. I was always interested in money from the standpoint of growing up, not having money and um, suffering as, as a result, frankly, like we, we weren't um, in poverty, but although my parents were in their lifetime when they were kids, but we were, you know, I would say uh, my mom says we were middle-class except lower. <laughs> and I'm like, well, they have words for that mom, but uh, she has some shame quite frankly related to it. So it's even hard for her to say. So I was always interested. I saw the differences between people who had money and people who didn't. I was, it looked much better to have money than not have money. Um, it opened up doors, opportunities. Uh, people seem to have a higher quality of life. Not necessarily happier, but just higher quality of life. And so I was always interested in money, um, somewhat from a social justice point of view, also in, in the field of psychology and looking at how can we help people who are suffering. And, and obviously money is a part of that suffering. And so I was always interested in it. But I got out of school. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. And growing up the way I grew up, my mother raised me to be um, very um, leery of debt and taking on debt and owing money to anybody else. And it was a really tough thing for me to borrow money to go to school. It was the only way I could do it, though. So I, I just actually, I remember in college doing research on which mental health profession makes the most money <laughs> and then choosing that as my path. If I was going to do it, I wanted to, to um, make more money if I was going to do the same type of work. So strategic in that sense. So I got out of school. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. Uh, I felt terrible about it. I saw a friend of mine make $100,000 in one year trading stocks. And the great thing about this is my friend knew nothing about the stock market, which is exactly how much I knew. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I sold, you'll notice some, some themes of uh, being relatively extreme in my life. So I sold pretty much everything I had of value and I put it all in the stock market and I had a fabulous three months and then the tech bubble burst and I just watched my money melt away. I felt terrible. It was just a horrific emotional experience. 
why would it, you know, the question for me was why would a reasonably intelligent person do something so radically stupid with his money, which set me as a clinical psychologist on what we would call a literature review. So I thought, okay, here, here, I ran into trouble here. Um, I'm going to search the field of psychology for answers. And so I literally went on, I started to do lit reviews and I couldn't find anything. And it was quite alarming because what I wanted to do was read a few articles, read a book or two, um, get my head straight and then move on in my life. That was my plan. I couldn't find anything. And I, it was so alarming to me because money is the number one source of stress in the lives of Americans. Study after study, and by the way, those studies are done by the American Psychological Association. Find that three out of four Americans, it's the biggest source of stress in their lives. And this is pre any type of crisis. So that, that research started before the Great Recession, certainly true before the pandemic. And so Wow. So psychologists help people with stress, yet we've totally ignored the topic. And so I sort of joke within a matter of a month, I became the world's leading expert in financial psychology, mainly because my colleagues in psychology had decided for over 100 years to totally ignore the topic. little funny side note, I eventually did research on mental health professionals. And sure enough, they tend to be money avoidant and have negative feelings about money and the wealthy and the rich, which, which of course leads to avoidance around that as a topic. So I, I actually said, okay, so th this is my problem. I've gotten into trouble here. And just like everything else in psychology, the trouble you get into is your fault. So this is, this is a really helpful mindset. Um, it, is, it is your fault. And as a matter of fact, if you can blame yourself for all of it, it's even better. Um, so, and we've done a bunch of studies on this too. So ultra wealthy people, when you compare them to middle class people, they are more likely to have what we call in psychology an internal locus of control. And that, that is sort of where do you see the control in the outcomes in your life? Where's that control coming from? Is it factors outside of you or is it you? And it turns out all the studies show that blaming yourself for everything, and I'm using that term liberally, um, taking responsibility for it is associated with all tremendous outcomes, both in education and work promotion, bouncing back from a tragedy, making money, net worth, et cetera. So, so anyway, I, I, when I read that in psychology, I was like, okay, I'm going to blame myself for everything. Yeah, I'll get farther in life. It'll help me out. So, so that's what I did. I said, so this is obviously something that I did. Like I, I, it would have been easy to blame the financial institutions and the tech and you, know, you, you fall into that trap. And when you do that, you just sort of sentence yourself for financial trouble the rest of your life. Um, and you'll just keep repeating those patterns. Because you, you never take ownership of it. You never take ownership of it. And then you're just a constant hapless victim. And people are constantly victimizing you. And you find yourself in the same situation repeatedly because you're making the same mistakes. It's, it's so interesting because as I was preparing for our interview today, one of the quotes I picked out of your book was exactly what you just said, that money is the number one stressor for most Americans. So so let's start with there. Why Why are we all messed up around money? Why is money so important to us, aside from the obvious that it gives us sustenance and some freedom, aside from the obvious things, why are we so askew with our relationship? Yeah, there's, there's several reasons. And one of them has to do with your upbringing. And we have, we're taught beliefs around money. In my research, we call them money scripts. We're taught these beliefs about money, how it works in the world. We get them very early in life, but money is a taboo topic. So Unlike other topics, we rarely shine a light and look into our beliefs around money and to, to see if they're right, see if they're you know, flawed. We rarely do that. So as a comparison, you know, we're all interested in relationships at some level. And in high school, it's sort of a breeding ground for 
exploring yourself in relationship with others, like what would make a good girlfriend, a good boyfriend, what sort of traits am I looking for? You're, you'll even be seeing your parents model their relationship or your friend's parents. And you'll be like, wow, that looks good. I'd like some of that. And there's talk about it, constant talk about it. And so you develop your philosophy around relationships and what it is you're looking for and, and your beliefs get challenged and changed, you know? That doesn't happen with money. Money is a taboo topic. We don't talk about it. We never, we never, let alone like your psychology around money, like your beliefs around it. We never talk about it. And so it sort of lays hidden in your subconscious and the, whatever distortion you have around your beliefs, like for example, if you grew up poor, there's a whole set of beliefs that go around with poor um, poverty and, and not having money. And those beliefs basically predict more of the same. And so you never have the ability or the opportunity to shine light on them, examine them, what's working, what's not working, what do I need to change? What are different ways of looking at this? So let me ask you a question. You know, obviously there's, you know, not even looking at your book, which I've read more than once, I can imagine, you know, there's there's people who come from a poverty perspective. There's people who overspend. There's people who are frugal. There's people who gamble. There's all these things. What What are the most common in order of kind of most likely disorder with money, what, what are some of the top ones? Well, I think the average American is an overspender. So now it, it can be a, a mental illness in a sense when it becomes like a gambling disorder, like you suggested, or a compulsive buying disorder, where it basically becomes an addiction, um, a very serious addiction. That, that's the minority of the population. It's actually very prevalent, but that's not what most people are dealing with. Most people are dealing with overspending in general. And we have a culture of overspending. We, have, we actually have a culture of um, a lack of financial literacy and responsibility. And it's real easy to sort of blame people for that. But we sort of structured society so that you didn't have to worry about it for generations. Like, so for, my, for example, my grandfather, he worked for GM and he got a pension and there was social security. And I don't think he ever saved a dime. As a matter of fact, he never put a dollar in the bank um, after the Great Depression, which is one of the stories I found when I looked into my own financial psychology. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder we were poor, you know? Um, But so as an example, he had those beliefs going on and it lasted his entire life. And it it set my mom up for her fear around money. And it set me up to, I wanted to be different than my parents. I wanted to, you know, gain some net worth. And so I thought, well, I'll do the opposite of what they do. And so I moved in that direction. But the bottom line is life was sort of set for him. He didn't have to worry about it. There was the government, there was the pension, personal finance, it didn't really matter. He didn't have to worry about investing. He didn't have to worry about saving money. He was going to get that check all the time. Well, the world has radically changed. He also couldn't get a credit card if he wanted. He couldn't get in any credit trouble. And so we, we had society structure in a way where you didn't have to worry about it, all of this. Um, and then all of a sudden, you had to worry about all of it. And nobody got the memo. And we weren't training kids uh, around school on how to look at debt, how to save for their own future. So even, essentially- Even balance a checking book. Exactly. So all the rules have changed. And we sit and we wonder why are Americans struggling so much? Well, all the rules have changed and we haven't equipped people with the tools they need to execute. That's, that's a great answer. What, so what would you, what are some basic things that you would like to see different, whether it's through education or, you know, like, like people have to go through a certain amount of training to get a driver's license. Like, should there be some sort of mandatory minimum understanding of finance and debt? And how do we implement, how do we implement that? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of financial literacy being put into high schools. Um, We actually had a bit of it when I was in school, just to date myself. It was called home economics. (laughs) And we learned how to sew. um, We learned how to cook. But we also did learn how to balance a checkbook. And a lot of that curriculum just got taken out, you know, due to educational 
funding shortfalls. But I'm a huge fan of it because it's an incredibly important practical skill. And when you think about life outcomes, which a lot of education is designed to help improve people's life outcomes, financial literacy, just sort of basic knowledge is really important because people get in trouble when they get into into their 20s. And to your point around the driver's license, you do have to learn how to drive a car under supervision. Whereas you walk on a college campus and all of a sudden they're handing you credit cards and you're like, oh, wow, look, oh, mine has $2,000 in it. I'm going to go spend it. Not really thinking about the implications. Uh, well, I'm glad you took home ec. I was no, I was really wanting to comment on the beautiful stitching on your shirt. So that's impre- <laughs> that's impressive. I'd like uh, to say I did it. <laughs> um, so another question I had was around this just topic of happiness or joy associated with money. So you know, I've seen many studies, and I'm I'm sure you've seen even more saying that you know the seventy five thousand dollars of income is sort of this threshold where incrementally more money doesn't make you incrementally more happy more happy. So what are your, what's your feedback? Oh, on that? Come on, Rob, we don't believe that. Come on, let's <laughs> be honest, right? So, and, and I've read all the research and, and actually that is indeed what the research says. And I'm sort of joking, but I've yet to find somebody who's like, oh, okay, I believe that. Cause we all think, well, not for me. I mean, they're just not doing it right. You know, you well, that's exactly the- right. That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly how I go. I say, you know, I, I think when I spoke to you before, I said, you know, I have this fantasy about winning the lottery and how that would solve all my problems. And you say, no, it wouldn't. And I go, I don't know. You know, if I, if I got 50 million, I think I'd be really smart and secure and safe with it. And it really actually would change things for me. Yes, exactly. And by the way, I, I don't think it would for you, but I do think it would for me, Rob. Um, <laughs> Um, so it, it's a fascinating thing around the research where none of us think it applies to us, but, but indeed it's true. And, and I know it to be true. Um, and there's some caveats in that literature too. It's like, that's, that's when you look at the general sample, the general population. So that that's definitely the case. And the rationale behind that is that, you know, your basic needs are met. You're around middle-class. I mean, that happens to be around the median income in the United States. So you're, you don't feel like you're a big loser. You know, you might not be feeling like you're a big winner, but basic needs are being taken care of. And above that, no big jump in happiness. And some caveats, it, it depends on how you spend your money. Like for, for people who are more into buying stuff, they'll be less likely to be happy with more money. For people who use it to um, enhance their life through experiences, being closer with family and friends, it can help improve your happiness. But essentially, we are incredibly adaptable as human beings. And there was this one classic study where they looked at lottery winners and they looked at accident victims and the accident victims had some type of injury that was, that was um, prominent and lasting. And they looked at these two different groups of people and they looked at who's happier. And no big surprise, in the first few months, the lottery winners were way happier. <laughs> but what was interesting is over time, they started to get closer and closer. And then the accident vi- victims surpassed the lottery winners in happiness and specifically around their ability to enjoy the little things in life and the moments in life. And, and frankly, that's really where happiness comes from. It's, a, it's the ability to immerse yourself in the moment, to be present, and to enjoy what's around you. And that doesn't take money. It really doesn't take money. And actually, um, and we talked about this before too, we have this fantasy that money's going to improve our life and, and fix all of our problems. And it's an incredible you know, mental health crisis for many people when they actually get that lottery win or that sell the business and, and make the big millions, especially if they've been spending decades of neglecting their health, their family, their relationships for that, that, um, that achievement that's going to radically change their happiness. And when they get there, it, they realize it doesn't. 
and because it won't. Um, we again, we we adapt. It's a lot like uh, celebrities that you know hit their pinnacle in their art, uh, let's say, and and then they realize, wow, this doesn't make me feel more loved or more needed, or I, you know, whatever that feeling is, and that's when they turn to drugs or whatever negative choice they make. Exactly. And, and then we all sit back and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe them. They're so stupid. You know, that would never happen to me. Um, but your risk of that happening to you is is really high when you think that money's going to magically make you happier. It's not. We, we have this, we tend to have this happiness set point. It's kind of like you, your weight, you know, for everyone can relate to there's this weight that your body sort of seems to want to be at. And it takes a lot of effort to get below it. Same sort of thing around happiness. It's like, unless you practice daily happiness um, enhancement to try to raise that, there's no magical thing from the outside that's going to make you happier. So, so talk to me when someone comes to you for counseling to your practice, talk to us in basic terms, or, and if you want to use an example of a specific challenge someone might have, walk us through how you would go about helping them have a better relationship with their money. Yep. So obviously it, it depends on, on the situation, but one of the things I really encourage people to do again, because this is probably something you've never done um, is go back and do what I did. So I, I, the rest of my stories, I got on a plane, I went home and I started interviewing my mother and my father and take, I recorded it and took notes. Like, what was it like for you growing up around money? Well, what was it like for grandma and grandpa? So you were at this socioeconomic class. How did it feel? I, and I just spent hours with both my parents taking notes. I talked to my aunts. I, I mean, I did, did all that family research. And then all of a sudden, this crazy behaviors I was making in my own life made total and absolute sense. And as a matter of fact, it, it was totally predictable that I would do this. Um, it seemed crazy, but it made total sense based on those beliefs. And so that's sort of the exercise I encourage people to do if they really want to get a handle on their relationship with money is even jot down like what three things did your mother teach you about money? What three things did your father teach you about money? What was it like for you growing up at your socioeconomic level? So do a verbal inter- inventory if you can with if you can. the people in you're in relationship with or who formed your feelings around money. But if you can't, at least go through a memory exercise. Exactly. Yeah. So in your own life. And what I found is actually back two generations. So I mentioned my grandfather. A lot of this started with my grandfather on both sides. And it's like, whoa, I had never even heard of these stories. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, no wonder. And it just gives you some perspective. And it, it also does something that's incredibly helpful. I call it de-shaming. Because so many of us have so much shame around money, especially when we're making bad decisions. And frankly, we all know better. That's the other sort of caveat here. It's like we get into trouble around money on things that we actually know better around for the most part. Like most Americans, our problems are spending more than we make, not saving enough for the future. I've yet to meet somebody who, who's like, oh my gosh, really? I was supposed to do that? Everyone knows they should do that. I mean, so it, it helps de-shame you by realizing you're playing out a family pattern that in some cases goes back for generations, multiple generations. Um, and just putting it in perspective really helps. And that, so that de-shaming gives you more of an opportunity to conquer it, essentially. Yeah, like shame ends up being sort of like an emotional glue trap where you're just sort of like, you know, there's something wrong with me and it just mires you down and it's not energy. It's the opposite of energizing and people have a tendency to give up or just repeat patterns as a result. Um, So breaking through that shame, realizing uh, again, I could probably take any person, put them in the experience in the family you grew up in and they'd be probably doing what you're doing. So this isn't some sort of fundamental characterological flaw or you're somehow a bad person. It's just absolutely predictable. So after they do that inventory uh, with family members or people who influence them, what, what else is critical? 
So then I like to have people examine the specific beliefs they have around money. And in our research, we call these money scripts. And these are the beliefs that are associated with those experiences and those messages you got from your family members. And our studies have shown that, you know, I mentioned before that mental health professionals have a tendency to be money avoidant. So the beliefs in that category are things like, you know, rich people are greedy, money is bad, money corrupts, there's virtue in having less money. And there's an entire groups of people who endorse that philosophy and no big surprise it's associated with terrible financial outcomes. So lower income, more likely to self-destruct. And so I encourage people to look at their beliefs around money. What were these messages you have? Because these are the things that are clanking around in your subconscious and that are basically determining your results. Yeah, very interesting. So one of the things that resonated with me in the book and then also when I, I consulted with you myself uh, was this idea of looking at the worst case scenario. Yeah, so it's, it's really um, a great exercise, especially in moments of crisis and fear. And we all have them, you know, as a nation, we're experiencing one now and we we will again in the future and we have in the past, but it comes down to our financial stress. And so financial stress, we're typically experiencing it when we feel like things are out of control or it's unpredictable. We're very worried about what's happening. And for most Americans, your financial situation probably won't kill you. Now, there's some caveats there. Like if, if you don't have enough money for food, it's absolutely a threat. But for the average American, as bad as it gets, it's probably not going to kill you. And this is super important to remember because studies have shown that that financial stress, when you feel like it might kill you and believe it might, will actually kill you. So financial stress is a huge risk factor in mortality. It's right up there with like smoking and heart disease. And so the worst case scenario exercise is meant to sort of expose you to some of this fear. And essentially, you just paint out the worst case scenario. So, um, oh, no, I might lose my job. And then the question is, well, then what would happen? well, then I might lose my house. Well, then what would happen? And you just keep asking yourself that question all the way till you get to the worst case scenario. Um, And it's sort of like an exposure technique in psychology. Like if you're afraid of snakes or dogs, we'll eventually want you to go pet a snake or dog or at least get near one and relieve some of that anxiety. And and if you realize that your life is actually threatened, then you look to problem solve that because that is a huge issue. But for most of us, the fear way outweighs the actual physical threat, but our brain takes it as a life or death situation. Yeah, that's that's very well said. And I also believe uh, finances are the number one cause of divorce as well. Absolutely. It's the number one cause of divorce, especially in the first three years of marriage, studies have shown. Um, and even after that, it's a common source of disagreement and conflict. And all the studies on couples too, and this is really alarming, shows that by the time a couple gets into counseling, for example, around an issue, They've been fighting about something for seven years, seven years. And that's seven years of building resentment and conflict. Um, And so it's a huge issue. I can see money being such a big issue for many couples. I mean, I've been, I've been married 20 years and, and I remember when we, before we got engaged, we already had talks about like, you know, what's your philosophy You know, how much would you save? And are you willing to live on less? And we just kind of, we're on the same page. So we've never had that. Not that we don't have stress around money, but we don't have conflict around And um, I can imagine, you know, so many people don't have that conversation. And then now you've got two different family dynamics merging in a, in a household and, you know, one person's overspending and one person's frugal and one person's lying about the money. It's just a cocktail for disaster. It really is. And and you have the conversation. So if you were going to ask me how I work with couples, um, I have them actually go have that conversation you guys had early on. And, you know, I have them talk about like, you know, what are your fears? What are your goals? What was it like for you? Um, Because we have conversations early on in 
in our relationship around compatibility, around things like, do you want to have a family or kids? And sometimes people are like, oh, you don't, I do. Okay, well, this isn't going to work. We don't have that around money. And people come with radically different philosophies and different goals. And then they stumble upon them later on. And then it becomes a hot mess. Yeah. So let me, um, let me make myself vulnerable a little bit and, and kind of share with you uh, one of my issues. And the audience can kind of hear us talk about it a little bit. And my, my listeners know, you know, my parents are both Holocaust survivors. That was my first two episodes was interviewing them. And, and they were actually amazing role models around money. They lived on less than they earned. They invested in real estate and other vehicles. They, um, you know, have never had to take any sort of government assistance. Uh, they live a very comfortable retirement in their 80s and 90s uh, off the investments that they've made over the years. So, so they've been great role models in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think one of the things that, that, came from their experience down to me and I'll just use one one sliver of it because you know we have a short call but um, you know there's a scarcity mentality uh, around anyone who's gone through something like the Holocaust and so certainly that translated to their view on money and I think also I inherited a bit of that a bit of that view and even as someone who's you know in the top one percent or whatever and has in many ways done pretty well I certainly have that scarcity even, uh, as I've increasingly done better and better with money. So what what are your thoughts or orig- initial comments to someone with that background? So what we know, and, and we've done studies on this too, um, not to sound like a nerd, but it, we call it trauma, financial trauma. And it's certainly true for many Holocaust survivors that you know the trauma was very widespread, obviously, but some of it was financial in the sense that assets were seized, you know, ent- entire family legacies were taken away financially. And um, that is a very traumatic experience for people. And, you know, I encourage your listeners to think about their experiences growing up or their family, you know, history. There's a lot of financial trauma that that's, exists. And when we have that, those beliefs around money become much more sticky and difficult to shake. So, for example, coming from that scarcity mindset usually comes from, you know, there's, there's not enough money. You know, that, this is just the money script. There's not enough money or perhaps there'll never be enough money. And that belief is incredibly powerful when there's really intense emotion attached to it because you've experienced a trauma. And so the more intense the emotion, the more difficult it is to look at things from another perspective or or to um, shift it a little bit. Because sometimes it might be helpful to have a mindset, well, there might be enough money. And for example, that, that mindset might help you drift off to sleep at night versus believing that there will never be enough money. And just using that as an example, that money script, there'll never be enough money. There, it can lead to two di- extremes when there's a lot of emotion attached to it. So one extreme would be the, the topic of actually my first book was Ebenezer Scrooge and his transformation process. And he had a very, he had early trauma, according to Dickens, if you really dive into the book, which obviously we did and analyzed it. And he, he had this belief there'll never be enough money. And that belief led to him being an incredible workaholic, a bit of a jerk. And he saved a ton of money, but didn't allow him, to, him to, himself to experience any joy associated with it. So he wasn't heating his house. He was eating gruel. And that is an example of financial trauma. There'll, there'll never be enough money. On the flip side, it can lead to what we would call in psychology learned helplessness. It's like there'll never be enough money. So why, why bother trying? And you see this pattern a lot. And, and people for, with that mindset, when they get credit, they'll just use it. Well, there's never going to be enough money anyway. You know, if they can borrow money, they'll take it. They'll use it. They, they won't try. It, it can be very disempowering. And so 
so to answer your question, those experiences are so important to know because they are, they are shaping your relationship with money. Um, and quite unconsciously, unless you've thought a lot about it. That's, that's a great answer. I really appreciate that. So if, if you're comfortable and, um, and you know, obviously you wouldn't name anyone, but can you think of someone that you've interviewed in one of your books or who's been an example in one of your books? It was like a really poignant example of how your work can work that you'd like to share with the audience. Yeah. So one, one client comes to mind and she was an extremely successful business person, but had sort of major issues around relationships. Like, so there's part of her that I think that even back then that wanted to have kids, but she would say, I don't want kids. I don't want a relationship. This is a very intense belief of hers, which is fine. I mean, as psychologists, it's like, you're welcome to any belief you want, unless you're suffering. And then I don't want you to have it. You know, I want to shift it for you if you're, if it's allowing you to suffer. And that, so that was her and she, but she knew that she had anxiety about money. She knew she was incredibly driven workaholic. And she knew that there, she had lost out on some experiences in life as a result of that. And so what we did with her is, is similar to what I described with you is, is sort of dug into her history a little bit. And it turns out that, you know, and she hadn't really thought about it much, which is very typical. You know, it's like your life is sort of the pool you're swimming around in and you're a fish and it's just the water. It's just, you know, you'll hear people say, yeah, well, you know, that's just what happened. It's not a big deal. Um, but she and her sister, her mother basically gave them up for adoption because she didn't have money to afford them and actually sat them down and said, Hey, look, I don't have money. So you guys are going to, I'm going to have to give you to your, your aunt. Um, and very traumatic experience. I mean, she's a young girl. She's probably six or seven. I mean, imagine that age. And all of a sudden your mother's saying, look, I not going to take care of you anymore. Wow. Traumatic. So what's interesting is her sister went on the other side, like you can't trust anyone. So the belief is you can't trust anyone. Right. Um, and so her sisters, you can't trust anyone. That was her belief. So she was desperately looking for somebody to trust, to disprove it. And she ended up with a bunch of different guys who were totally took advantage of her, weren't safe, weren't nice to her. The, our client never had a serious relationship. You can't trust anyone. You got to do it on your own. And so by looking back at that and working with the emotions associated with that, she's probably one of the bigger transformations that I've seen in the sense that she then decided to get married and has a family of her own. And, and when we started working with her, she was in her late thirties and I just talked to her and this was years ago. And I just talked to her a few weeks ago and it's just so incredible to see her because, because that is actually sort of her true self. Right. And it was being clouded by this trauma and definitely intersecting with money and to see that now she's happily married with children. And, and the idea that she would have perhaps lost out on this by not taking the time to go back and look at that and process it. That must be so gratifying for you. And you, you know, you said multiple times, you know, trust around, you know, the topic of money. And one of the questions I'd written down originally today was how do we deal as a society with sort of this, I'll say partially it's a lack of trust for certain financial institutions or financial instruments, or that the game is sort of rigged, like, Hey, you know, rich people can buy in in this way and regular people sort of buy in at the street level, which isn't as advantageous, you know, and I carry some of that, you know, mistrust if like, am I really playing the game at the level that other people are able to? So talk to us a little bit about grappling with those trust issues. Yeah, the trust issues are real. And um, especially if you have some mistrust in your subconscious um, based on past traumas, um, because when you, when you have that, then you're always looking for it. And you are just as an example, you are going to be extremely vigilant. All of us are. If you grew up in, in a mindset of like rich people are bad or greedy or somehow nefarious, there are constant examples being thrown in your face 
of wealthy people just doing terrible things to the world, to each other, to humanity. And um, in psychology, we call it a confirmation bias. And um, confirmation biases are incredibly powerful. And essentially, you've you've determined how rich people are. And so then you just screen through the environment, you find all the information that proves you right, and you totally discount anything that proves you wrong. Oh, Bill Gates, yeah, right. He's doing it for bad reasons. Like, don't give me that. You know, he doesn't really want to help the world. You find reasons why, and, and you surround yourself with people who see it exactly the way you do. Um, and it's an incredible bubble that we all create for ourselves. And we love to look at our, our rivals as living in bubbles, but hey, you're in one too. Um, it's really helpful to know that. The idea is to sort of expand that bubble if you want to, if you want to become a more effective human being. Um, but yeah, so we have those bubbles and they just get constantly reinforced by our um, earnest desire to prove ourselves right all the time. So speaking of bubbles, we are, most of us in this country are living in one right now because of the pandemic forget the exact percentage, but I believe around 90% of the population is under some sort of stay at home issue from their local government. So talk to us about the money psychology that's going on right now when you've got unemployment higher than it's ever been or close to as high as it's ever been and all the uncertainty. This only has to accelerate all the things that you're helping clients deal with. Yes. And, um, you know, this, this is so incredibly real and, it just seems to get more and more real every day. And um, it just sort of depends on which angle you're looking at it. Like I have some clients who are really worried about what's happening in their portfolios. And, and this is nothing to be dismissed. I mean, we're talking about in lifetime of hard work and savings and nearing retirement. And now the fear that, oh, no, this might all be gone. I mean, wow. Other people who are, have lost their job, they're struggling to get government assistance or small business owners who are in a, in a sort of a terrible situation where they have 40 or 50 employees that rely on them and they're struggling because their doors are being shut. And so I think this is where the worst case scenario exercise can be really helpful because again, for many people, it might end up with you living back with your parents or with your siblings um, a few months from now, filing bankruptcy and having to start over, but that's not going to kill you. It will kill you if you let it kill you, but it won't. And as a matter of fact, just to take heart, you know, the average millionaire, the studies have shown, have had approximately three major financial catastrophes in their life. And what they do is they have an internal locus control and they're like, hey, you know, I I couldn't have helped the coronavirus, obviously, but maybe I could have done X, Y, and Z. Or I've learned a lot from that last business. I'm going to just file for bankruptcy. I'm going to move on. I'm going to start another one. They just get back on the horse. The average non-millionaire has approximately less than one major financial catastrophe, which tells me that they're either they're not trying or they're not really taking those entrepreneurial risks or they try once and then they're like, forget it. You know, everyone in my family told me I was stupid for trying to do that business because they're, they all have jobs with the state, for example. And so I'm never going to try it again. Like they were right. And so that's where people sort of quit. But you know, these types of crises, there's incredible opportunities. So this is the mindset that I'm adopting. And, and by the way, this crisis is affecting me. I have two, ch- two young children. I have four businesses. Some of them are getting hit extremely hard. This is a real deal, right? But for me, it's like the best way to approach this kind of thing is, you know, what's the opportunity? Where's the opportunity? Okay, so great. You're stuck at home with your kids and your, and your, and your wife. So the opportunity is that I could have, I could work on improving my relationship with my wife, which is something I consciously do. I can work at being a better father. Like these are really important things. And, and talk about happiness. These, if I do that, I'll be way happier than making more money. <laughs> so always looking for the opportunity. I've, I've actually started another business in the last two weeks. Um, in the midst of what's going on. I'm always looking for the opportunity. And this is, it's a great mindset. I encourage people to join me in that because it's actually kind of fun. 
but there's always opportunities in the midst of crisis. And um, that's the mindset I think is the most helpful. I think that's incredibly healthy and helpful. And it actually is helpful to me as well, because I'm like you own multiple businesses and some are, you know, thriving and some are, you know, challenged right now under these current circumstances, which leads me to my next thing. I, I had mentioned to you when we were prepping for this, that a couple of years ago, I became interested and, and just interested, I wouldn't say I've adopted this, but I was interested in this kind of mindset around minimalism and, and not the idea of minimalism, like, Hey, I'm going to live out of a knapsack and travel the world, you know, 12 months out of the year, but more like minimalism as in, uh, as much as I want to continue to accumulate and build wealth and create passive income and all that, I don't want money to be the centerpiece of who I am and what I'm focused on in my life. I want it to be something that accentuates and helps my life. And so that, that has been a mindset that I've gone to uh, from time to time. And I found a quote in your book from one of your patients. I wanted to just read it and get your feedback. He says, I am my net worth has turned into I'm okay right where I am. I have learned that I can enjoy life today with what I have without pushing to get more. More is better is now more can be a burden. I feel more at peace living in today. I feel more balanced. Yep. So I love that. I, um, my wife and I too are experimenting with minimalist living in the current environment. And we've actually had fun doing it. Like, I mean, that's the other thing. It's, it's all about your mindset. Um, but we've, I'd say we've reduced our spending by, I'd say 20 or 30% on things that we didn't, we realized we didn't really need it. So unconsciously spending it, it just eventually ends up on the, on the credit card or on the recurring expense cycle. Um, and so we've been much more conscious and we've used this as an opportunity to become much more conscious. And yeah, so, so to that client's point, you know, the belief that more money will make us happier can leads to destruction, frankly, in, in many people's lives, including workaholism, including high anxiety levels and inability to relax. And one of the key things to, to pay attention to is we've, we've talked about the hedonic treadmill and just understanding that as human beings, one of the reasons we've survived as a species is because we're never satisfied. We're, we never rest on our laurels. We're always looking for that next kill or that next thing, you know, to like keep us alive. That's essentially the motor that's running in our minds. And, and a lot of the mindfulness practices designed to sort of quiet that down, like things are okay and, and finding ways to enjoy our lives. Um, and so just recognizing that there is no goal that's actually going to magically make you happier, that the practice and the, the excitement and the opportunity is engaging yourself in the process like have fun. Like it's great to work and make money as long as you're enjoying the process. Like that's, what's important to me. You know, I want to have $5 million in the bank, whatever. I, I want you to enjoy, if you can enjoy the process of that achievement, then I'm okay with it. Because when you have the 5 million in the bank, it, you're not going to be satisfied with it. You, you won't. Um, and studies have shown this repeatedly. You ask people who make 50,000 a year, how much do you need to make a year to be happy? They say a hundred. You ask people make a hundred, how much to be happy? They say 200. And it just keeps going and going and going. So I recognizing that this is how your psychology works is, is actually incredibly liberating. You may, you may not change your behavior, but hopefully you'll enjoy it more. Realizing that this is the experience of life. That goal is not going to make you happy. Well, and it's interesting that you were saying how you've cut your budget and realize there's things you're spending on that you don't need. Um, I've been consulting some of my clients on the exact same thing because, you know, we're, we're forced to spend less, meaning it'd be really hard to spend more money right now. Like unless you're just ordering, you know, 
uh, pool tables off Amazon or whatever every day and, and spending money. Uh, I mean, we, I think, I think we've cut our budget non, non-intentionally by even more than 30%. I think we're probably living off half what we were because, you know, there's no travel, there's no going out to eat, there's no movies, there's no buying clothes. There's just, there's just so much less spending. And, um, aside from the natural anxiety and concern that I think we all have about the health issues and the financial issues that are happening out there, I don't feel less happy because I'm not spending as much. I, I don't, I feel no difference in my happiness around not having shopped for clothing recently or a surfboard or whatever it is I want. Last question I want to ask you before we sum up is um, there's many, many gurus and educators and, and uh, consultants who will say it's really important who you surround yourself with, you know, that you are the sum financially speaking of, you know, the five people close to you, you're most likely to mirror their financial success or lack of success. So what are your thoughts on that? So I, I actually agree with that um, in many, many ways. And I would expand it beyond just finance and just be like, you know, ha- happily married too. And, you know, people enjoying life and, and across the board. And really, we, ha- we tend to cluster in groups of people. I, I call it your socioeconomic herd. And we all share the same beliefs. We all share the same attitudes. And um, if you wanted to, if it would make you really happy, the process of climbing the socioeconomic ladder, you see how I phrase that, then I want you to do it. Um, And if you want to get to a higher or a different socioeconomic space, what's so interesting about the minimalists is that they're saying, you know, we have a philosophy, you can join us in this. And, but you need to learn the philosophy. You need to learn how we look at the world. You need to learn how we live. It's almost like going to another country. Same thing if you wanted to go higher in your net worth or, or spending. Because people have very different beliefs around money. They have very different attitudes. And they might be thinking about things entirely different than you do. So, for, for example, in our study of ultra-wealthy people with middle-class people, tons of different behaviors and beliefs. And one of those is, for example that the ultra-wealthy people much more likely to have um, hire the services of a business coach, a financial advisor, a CPA, a, an attorney. And um, what I've seen in working with middle-class individuals is this is a really tough thing for them to do. It's sort of like do-it-yourself-itis. You know, it's like your mower's broke, you fix it. Tax time, you do your taxes. Well, if, if you have a business and you're starting to have a more complicated life, you are going to lose out big time by trying to, you know, unless you read all the tax journals every quarter, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be losing out on money. So huge mindset shift. And some of the only ways to do that is to find a mentor or find a group of people who are operating at the level you want to operate at because they're looking at the world entirely differently than you are. Yeah, that's very well put. So uh, this is, I, I could, I could do this for another hour, but um, I want to, I guess, give you the opportunity to close with anything I didn't ask you or anything that you want to kind of wrap this up with from a financial health perspective. Sure. So I'd sum it up by saying that, you know, your financial struggles, let's say you're overspending, you're not saving enough. I mean, whatever it is, they're not the result of you being stupid or crazy or lazy. They are entirely predictable based on your psychology, where you grew up, what happened, what's happened in your family system. And so just, you know, and, and also welcome to the club. Okay. So the average American is, is a hot mess financially. And so if you are, don't let that stop you from looking at your relationship with money and making changes because we've done the research. And if you can adopt the right beliefs and the right attitude, the outcomes will follow. 
Um, and so just look, stop shaming yourself. It's okay. You know, you're a good person and, and you can actually totally transform your life. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's very well said. And I think no matter where people are, you know, they're always comparing themselves to the next level. Like you said, you know, if you start that business now, you got to surround yourself with people who know the tax accountant who can help you. And so I find wherever I am financially, which is better than I predicted I would be, I'm still kind of going like, oh, well, I'm not there. So there's, there's no there there, it seems. So yeah, very uh, amazing words of wisdom, Brad. Thank you so much for being here. I'm going to make sure that uh, your book, Mind Over Money, and your website are in the show notes if people want to contact you or order your book. I really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Clear Choices, talking about the ever-present influence that money has over all of us. And uh, I hope you got value out of this today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. All this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.